Well, hey, everyone, this is Rob, and that's Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, we are talking about Florida's own Tom Petty and his magnum opus, Wildflowers. It's our favorite Tom Petty album. It is maybe Tom Petty at his very best. And so today, to help us get to the bottom of why this Tom Petty album is so good, we are pleased to be joined by our guest, Michael Washburn. Michael Washburn is a resident of Louisville, Kentucky, but splits time between Louisville and New York, where he works for the Department of Humanities for New York, doing all kinds of great social work. Uh, but he is also the author of the 33 and a third series volume on Tom Petty's album, Southern Accents. And so today we're going to talk to him about Tom Petty, about what it means to be an artist from the South wrestling with being Southern, and what makes Wildflowers such a great album. Makai and I can't thank Michael enough for his generosity of time. He spent two hours with us on the phone and we loved talking to him and there's a good chance that you may hear from him again. So without further ado, let me go ahead and jump in to our conversation with Michael Washburn. Michael, we were so glad that you're with us. You are the author of the 33 and a third series of books about Southern accents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The volume in the 33 and a third series on Southern accents. Yes, yes. Yeah, so I wrote the, the volume in the 33 and a third series on petty Southern accents. And uh, for those of your listeners who don't know what that series is, it's um, a long-running series initially published by Continuum and now by, published by Bloomsbury Academic. Uh, I think my book was number 148 or 139 in the series. And every book in the series is ostensibly about a different record, hence 33 and a third. And, but beyond that, like very loose parameter, there's a lot of elasticity and writers can take a, have a lot of autonomy to approach the albums in whatever manner they choose. So some people are more personal, some people are more critical, some people blend it, some people celebrate it, some people drag them. Um, and I did a little bit of everything in mind. Give us kind of an introduction. What was your way into Tom Petty? And maybe specifically, what was your way into Tom Petty that led you to write about Southern accents of all of his albums? Yeah, I mean, there's a, on the cutting room floor of the book. I mean, I, I and this this features a little bit in the um, in the book, but like my introduction to Tom Petty was the free fallen video, you know, sort of like high Uber Southern Californian of like creepy old Tom Petty hanging out at the mall talking about good girls, right? And I thought, and then there's the video for I won't back down, which was like Petty and these drunk goofy uncles, like with a lot of self-regard, like making faces. And, you know, those guys, it was George Harrison. It was um, Jeff Lynn. You know, it was Mike Campbell. Um, Ringo Starr. And Ringo Starr. And I didn't know, like, who those people were. But I was like, how did some mild-mannered folky, like, become all over my MTV, right, with these very mild-mannered songs? And, like, so the lesson there, you know, is no matter how true something is, you can never overlook the fact that someone's got to learn it every time, right? And so that was one way I began thinking about Petty's sort of transformation because everyone I knew thought that Petty was a Californian or everyone like in my age group, right? Not everyone I knew, but everyone who was like roughly my age, I'm 46. Um, so people, everyone younger than me and around my age and a little bit older, all kind of neglected the sort of Petty of Northern Florida, right? The Gainesville Petty. Yeah, so I've always thought that was kind of interesting. And then when I started to think about where I live and where I'm from, Louisville, Kentucky, and its kind of ambivalence about its southernness or its ambivalence about being Midwestern, uh, these are things that I have thought about a lot in the context of a, this is going to be a statement that needs to be unpacked, but does the South even actually exist, right? All these things about the Southern mystique, like how real are they or how much they are a fabrication that's still a descendant of a lost cause. All these things always flop around in my head and they are, I think, categorically and irrefutably the sort of complex of issues that that album is embedded in. So um, when I was looking to write a book for that series, um, 
because, you know, it's something I wanted to do. I started to think about initially the drive-by truckers and then shied away from that for various reasons. And then that Petty record started to make a lot of sense to me because one, um, for the, if you don't want to remind you or for your listeners who don't know, like this is the record that is kind of uh, steeped in Petty lore. This is the album during which he got so frustrated, I say fueled by cocaine, and Mike Campbell told me as much too. He powders his hand while trying to get the mix right for Rebels, which Campbell actually puts at the feet of Don Henley because Boys of Summer was a track that Petty had turned down for the Southern Accent Sessions. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. And uh, this is also when Dave Stewart came in and they did Don't Come Around Here No More, which was initially a Stevie Nicks track, right? Mm-hmm. But they stayed up all night and ended up cutting the vocal, and she came back and fired Jimmy Iovine and gave the song to Tom Petty. Um, this was the, the album that had uh, the best of me, the best of everything, sorry, which Robbie Robertson had initially tapped for a Martin Scorsese movie called The King of Comedy. All these things were kind of floating around about it, but it was also Petty's attempt at um, a grand artistic statement, right? Mm-hmm. He was at that point bored, like it was right long after Long After Dark, a record which he was getting bored by, which was a little rigid in the hips and it didn't sell well. And he wanted to make some, he was rolling around in his tour bus through the South, like thinking of one word tags for Southern concepts, trailer, rebel, et cetera. Um, and uh, he decided to write this concept album about the American South as a grand gesture. Cause what else can a white boy from the South do if they want to make an artistic gesture, they write about the South, right? right. Um, and it fails in manifold ways that span from the aesthetic to the narcotic. And I think it's exactly in the failure that it makes it interesting. And I've probably wrote this in the book or said it a lot of times, but I think that it's much more interesting to look at uh, something that is riddled with frailty than something that is uh, close to perfection, which I would say Wildflowers is. Like conceptually and emotionally, it's a much more coherent project than Southern Accents, which even in its bare nine track listing is really three different records. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of an artistic mess. And then you peel the layers and you see one, like for something about the South, there's nothing about African-American culture in that record at all. The only thing that even gestures to that is a song that was released on American Treasure a couple of years ago called Walking Away from the Fire, I forget the name of it, where he mentioned he invokes Chuck Berry as looking sort of without affirmation on white appropriation of African-American culture. Then you get to the tour, right? And that's when he literally wraps himself in the iconography of the, American, of the Confederate battle flag, right? And that's where a record where in his failed attempt to be Randy Newman, right? Like for that album, Good Old Boys, and write mm-hmm. a series of story songs, he actually ended up writing a, like a series of neo-Confederate apologies and then toured them around the country, right? Mm-hmm. And then finally, and this is not about Southern accents, we're talking about wildfires tonight, but since you asked, um, in 2015, after uh, that guy who I will not name shot up the Emanuel A&E Church in Charleston, right? He was ad- intending to start a race war uh, he was actually, you know, had his pistol and his battle flag on his Facebook post. Petty came out of the woodwork, called up Rolling Stone the day that South Carolina voted to remove the battle flag from the statehouse grounds, and he issued what I think is a terrifically um, sincere celebrity mea culpa, where he said, look, when I was growing up, the battle flag was the wallpaper of the South. I didn't know anything about it. It's just what we had to deal with. And he said something that I think is becoming un-American. He said, I didn't think about how it would look to someone else, right? He actually had a call for empathy, Right across racial lines. And that's actually why I think it's, that's why the entire Southern accents thing is interesting to me for all those components. And there's another sort of sub story in the book where I think that coupled with let me up, I've had enough, which I think is a horrible record. It came out, that was the record after Southern accents. I think that um, full moon fever is an allergic reaction to the failure of Southern accents. Right. So you had a Southern guy who goes to California and I'd make the argument, I would make the argument always that they were a Southern band from the beginning. Um, more so than a Southern Californian band. And there's a few tells about that, I think, that are there. Um, but then he like went all in on the South, did that incoherently. And then when that brought the racists out of the woodwork, he's like, well, if this is what it means to be Southern, then to hell with being Southern, mm. right? Went back in, made a whole new set of friends, had an entirely different sound, and it actually reset his career. So in my email where I said, I don't think it's the best, I think it's the most pivotal, that's why I think it's the most pivotal, because it was uh, attempted... It was a failure, right? It failed. It was an ambition that failed, and then it also redirected him to, I think, actually become a truer version of himself. We we weren't intending these to be as connected as they are, but um, our episode that came out, our, our second episode that came out, is about Bob Dylan's "Blood on the Tracks," mm-hmm. which which is 
um, arguably his most personal album. Mm -hmm. It is essentially his divorce album. It is an album written about the end of his marriage with Sarah. And as we kind of look at this transition that, that I wholeheartedly agree, this, this pivotal nature of the abject failure of Southern accents and in the misstep of that, and, and then all those things together, kind of, you know, the reinvention that happens with the Traveling Wilburys, the house fire, all of these things, and then his, his marriage essentially to his high school sweetheart, there is this massive life change that's happening between, you know, 88 and 94 for this guy born in 1950. So here he is entering in to, to his thirties. I mean, he is, he is a grown adult with a wife and kid and, and, and yet he's gone through massive success and then a season of failure. There is this transition happening. And so without Southern accents, it could be argued without Southern accents, he never makes wildflowers. So I mentioned Randy Newman's good old boys, which is an album that like, if you think of Randy Newman, the Pixar composer, and you compare him to the Randy Newman of like that song rednecks or sailing away, which is crazy. Like that music is beautiful and appalling. It's, yep. it, it's insane. And one of Petty's primary influences and inspirations for Southern Accents was Randy Newman. Right? Oh, wow. He wanted to write story songs like Randy Newman. He wanted to write Rednecks. Rebels is supposed to be Rednecks, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing is, Petty's not that kind of artist. He doesn't have, I don't, what Randy Newman does isn't quite satire, right? But that's the word I'm going to use for right now. It's something more sophisticated than that. Mm -hmm. um, but Petty doesn't have that gift. And I think like, here's a good example of why. Rebels, right? The first shot across the bow in Southern accents, right? If that had not been pluralized, if it had just been rebel, that would have been a much easier song to sort of, I think, for people to consume as a character study. But when it's rebels and it's rah-rah and we're all rebels and we're at a petty show where everyone has like, everyone's like vibrates sympathetically to petty's music, right? Because it fits everyone's lives, right? And that song kind of unlike any of his others has a call and response, Totally. With the hey, oh. hey, hey, you know, yes. like, yes. And, and he hadn't really done anything like that before. So it, mm -hmm. it, it is very much charged as like a rallying thing. Yeah. And I think that like, that's just, Randy Newman wasn't doing that in same right. way. Right? right. I think the band um, is an interesting thing to talk about. That song's an interesting song to talk about. And I think that it's more artful than Rebels for the same reason, right? Virgil Kane is my name immediately tries to set itself up as a character study. But I think more importantly, and this is, I'm, rift, I'm lifting a little bit from Girl Marcus here, like the album within which that is situated, uh, 69, 1969's The Band, is just such an incredible like, exploration of all these different facets of American chaos, right? I mean, if you look at, um, God, what's the, what's the King Harvest? Like, that's an incredible, like, that's the biggest pro-labor song in rock and roll history, right? With drums. Um, and like that sits next to, to, to Dixie Down. And then you got Rocking Chair, which is a story about like intergenerational friendship in many ways, right? I just think that you've got to, maybe they were too clever, but I feel like if you're an astute listener, the fact that The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down is obviously a Confederate song um, is diluted to some extent um, by the fact that it sits in a non-obviously Confederate, but very deep enthrall to American history album. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, that, that it, almost in some ways, not faulting Petty, you know, not faulting mm -hmm. Petty for being a bad historian, in, in some ways, we're actually more likely to give that grace to the band than we are to Petty, almost because mm -hmm. of their, their, the lack of, they're not Southerners. Yeah. With, with the exception of, of, of Levon, like, they're, they're guys from Ontario. Yeah. So there is, there is a grace that there is a benefit of the doubt we're willing to give them. That yeah. The, the guy from Gainesville, Florida does not get. Right. Yeah. We, yeah. He, he yeah. should have known better. Right. <laughs> yeah. But let's, let's get into wildflowers this yeah. way, I guess, because Southern accents was supposed to be a, a wildly ambitious effort, right? It, it was supposed to be a double LP. Was it not? It was initially supposed to be a double. It was initially, in his thinking, going to be a solo album, right? Oh, about that. Really? It was supposed to be a solo album, yeah. Uh, and then that just didn't come together um, for reasons that are lost to history, or at least the people I spoke to. Um, yeah, initially they cut 26 tracks for uh, Southern Accents, 
and they were trying to self-produce big ambitious sprawling thing and they brought jimmy Iovine in to and they paired it down to nine tracks um, wow yeah to me it seems like wildflowers is the, the that kind of redemption where he kind of really gets to flesh out and, and do what he set out to do 10 years earlier that feels a little unfair to wildflowers to me actually i mean i feel like i feel like there's um I don't know if I used the offense, the word authenticity or sincerity earlier, but both apply, right? I feel like that there's um, this kind of like ambitious, ambitious theatrics to the entire Southern Accents project, which seems mm-hmm. to me to be thankfully lacking in Wildflowers, which just seems to be a much more emotionally secure record. I mean, it's a vulnerable record, but you can be secure. Mm-hmm. Vulnerability doesn't mean you're necessarily insecure, right? Right. Um, I, I mean, I would be reluctant to say that Obviously, things happen in a chain. Ch- like, there's a teleology, right? Um, but I don't know if it's actually a fru- the fruition of something that he set up to do in Southern Accents because the music changed so much after that, right? Um, I would say that the more immediate actualization of the Southern Accents impulse would be the fact that he did Full Moon Fever as a solo record. But I think that these are all important steps, right? Because I think that along with the transition from, because I feel like Lynn's production is still guarded, right? It's soft and it's not really my taste, right? I don't love those records because I don't love how they sound for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, they're high points, right? And I obviously, that's not a, that's taste. I can't defend that really. But I feel like once you get to Wildflowers, like things, and you suggested like Rick Rubin in, in one of the emails earlier, I think like that combination Mm. Right, really brought something out that feels almost jarring. Full Moon Fever is his first solo album, and pretty much no heartbreakers are on it. And he's with Jeff Lynn of ELO. Mm-hmm. Wildflowers happens, and he's with Rick Rubin and the Heartbreakers, mm-hmm. uh, with the exception of the drummer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's replaced by uh, was it Steve Ferroni mm-hmm. and um, also Ringo for at least one track. Mm-hmm. What is he getting from the Beastie Boys producer that he's not getting from the guy from ELO? I mean, why, <laughs> why, why the guy from the Fight for the Right to Party video? What is he getting out of Tom Petty that that Jeff Lynne, a fellow Wilbury? Uh, wasn't getting on those couple records that they worked with, that they worked together on. I don't know, man. I mean, whatever Johnny Cash was getting from Rick Rubin too. Right. You know? Well, he was I mean, also getting heartbreakers. That, like, yeah. Well, I mean, every, for at least every, one of those albums. Every, every heartbreaker played on Full Moon Fever except for Stan Lynch, right? It was recorded in Mike Campbell's kitchen, yeah. right? But they just—it was not a heartbreakers band uh, album. Um, I don't know. Like, what do you guys think about this? I don't really have a. I want to hear what you all think. What do you think Rubin brought that? So didn't, didn't have to open it up. So I, I think you hit on it, which is, so, you know, you look at Rick Rubin, his, his, his production work, he essentially produced about 10 albums in 1994. And the first album, number. the first album he produced that year was the first of the Johnny Cash American Recordings albums. He produces that Johnny Cash album. And then he goes on to produce a Sir Mix-A-Lot album, a Slayer album, a Danzig album, a Red Hot Chili Peppers album, you know, three basically brand new artists that, that don't ever turn out to be anything, and then Tom Petty's Wildflowers. Like, there, there is this thing that, whether it's just his ability, I think, to work with any artist, but there is something that, there's something Rick Rubin was getting out of Johnny Cash, Mm-hmm. that in many ways, here's Johnny Cash, you know, in, in Johnny Cash at that point in his career had really become a caricature of himself. There's no room at this point, and, and I mean, man, this goes straight into essentially one of the lyrics that Tom Petty's going to sing, you know, you don't know, what, you don't know how it feels to be me. Mm-hmm. This, this same idea that it seems like this is what Johnny Cash is stuck into, that that Johnny Cash has been so successful over the course of his career that he's almost been painted into this corner of doing album after album after album of what everyone wants. Mm-hmm. And Rick Rubin coming along and just saying, you, you, are one of the, you are one of the great American singers of all time. Let's get you to do what you want to do and we'll strip everything else away. We'll isolate you here at Shangri-La. We'll get you, you know, and 
And this is where that Southern California thing comes in. You know, hey, we're, we're going to get you away in Malibu. Mm-hmm. Here, here you go. We're going to get rid of every possible distraction. Um, the thing I think Rick Rubin as a producer is great at is, is helping an artist to focus on what it is they, they want to do. It, he's, I think Rick Rubin is really great at listening to an artist, helping them articulate what the goal is of an album and then very carefully helping them remove everything that is not that. So you don't think it's necessarily about like a simplification. It's just about getting to the core, I guess. Well, like the other albums that he did around that time, mm-hmm. right. Were they, were they reinventions or like a shearing away of superfluousness or, cause I don't, I'm not like, I just don't know the records well enough to know. I, I think American recordings, the Johnny Cash album is, uh, wildflowers is for sure. Um, but then there's some, I mean, essentially wandering spirit in 1993, which is the Mick Jagger solo album. Essentially it's trying to do with Mick Jagger, almost the same thing that Tom Petty is going to do. Johnny Cash is going to do ultimately with Mick Jagger to, that's really interesting to far less success because the difference is of course, where Tom Petty, I think is the primary songwriter on all of the Tom Petty and the Heartbreaker stuff. Johnny Cash is his own songwriter. Jagger is not a great songwriter on his own. Mm -hmm. And so kind of removing him away from the rest of the stones doesn't make him a better artist, even though that was clearly the attempt in. I'm going to listen to that. That's incredible. What, what often people talk about with Rick Rubin's production is that it's minimalist and, and, and I, I think that minimalist almost is too simplistic for it. Like, I do think it is, it is just focused. And yeah, I mean, there, there are some major, like, orchestra pieces and big orchestra moments in that. You know, so I, I wouldn't go to call that minimalist necessarily. Yeah. You know, there's some big songs in there also. I, for me, I think it just comes down to he's a hip producer. Yeah. He's a, he's a hip guy. He's a young guy. He's not a Wilbury. You know, he wasn't just, you know what I mean? Uh, not that, you know, Jeff Lynn, you know, as far as the Wilburys go, you know, didn't have the career that George Harrison, Dylan, or Roy Orbison had. But, you know, he, he is from a different time. And, and mm-hmm. Rick Rubin was still very fresh. And he still is. I mean, he's still able to mm-hmm. to to adopt uh, new music uh, really well. So, I mean, I think it just comes down to working with a hip guy. and <laughs> And I think that he sees, you know, how uh, Neil Young is being adopted by the grunge era. And I think that he sees that Tom Petty um, can potentially do the same thing. Yeah. I, I will tell you listening back over the last few days to, to wallflowers a whole lot. There, there are moments in that album where you're like, man, this is, I mean, it, it is right in front of you. I mean, the, the, the recording, the mixing, um, it's you know such sparse instrumentation on some songs it feels it feels like tom petty going through this divorce going through all of these you know these transitions in his life is he divorced or newly remarried at this point when does he get remarried his 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 divorce isn't finalized until the tour after this album and then and then it's another year and a half he's it's 96 it's essentially um right after the She's the One soundtrack, essentially all the, the other recording they did together right. for this album gets released as the She's the One soundtrack right around the time he's getting remarried. Um, it's so interesting, Rob, that you're calling this like kind of a divorce album because that's how people refer to Echo. And I had never thought of Wildflowers as being the divorce well, album. Well, no, so that's what I'm saying. So it's, it's this weird, you know, this, this weird kind of oscillation between the two where there are these songs where it's so intimate it's so stripped bare um there's even songs um house in the woods Mm -hmm. um the the slide guitar in house in the woods he sings along with the slide guitar in this in you know as as i can tell by your instruments in the background i assume you're a musician but the beauty of course of the slide guitar is the slide guitar is always slightly off off tune like it's it, the beauty of a, of a slide is that it's never perfectly on pitch it's always kind of coming up to bending up to the note or coming away from the note and he sings to match the melody of the slide guitar 
which makes his voice do, you know, a guy who's such a great singer can, you know, essentially sing his own harmonies, which he does on half the album. And yet there's songs where he's, he's intentionally doing this thing where his voice sounds. There's like wavering on the intonation. Yeah. Interesting. And and so, but, but in that you, you hear this almost like this frailty, this vulnerability in his voice that I feel like you don't hear on other Tom Petty albums. So you have songs like that. And then you have other songs on the album where you're like, Oh, this is just a love letter to rock guitars. I mean, they're, he and, he and Campbell play some phenomenal stuff. It's true. On this album. It's a great Mike Campbell album. It is. It is. I, um, I mean, I read somewhere that, you know, I, I want to say he was talking to, Petty was talking to his therapist or talking to someone, but you guys might know the story, but speaking of the title track of Wildflowers, like, you know, who do you think you're singing to, Tom? Like, you're singing to yourself, mm-hmm. right? This is you, like, telling, giving yourself the permission to go out and seek this happiness, right? So I had always heard of Echo as the divorce album, too. Um, and there's some live performances of Room at the Tar- that Room at the Top, which are just devastating. Yeah. But I can really see how this is kind of um, like an emo- the parts of it, like are the emotional freedom record, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's just incredible, yeah, love letters to rock guitar and then incredible lines like in Time to Move On when he manages to work in the line, it's nauseous adrenaline, like breaking up a dog fight. Like, I don't know. That's incredible. Like that's a small moment, but it's just a even nauseous adrenaline in a song is an incredible bunch of syllables to stick together. <laughs> that's he's totally not that kind of guy. I, he, no. He, note for note, I mean that that song is among his his top best. Uh, I agree. I agree. Well, well, let's let's go ahead and and, and jump into this because one of the questions that we have, of course, is 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 what sounds like all all pretty big Tom Petty fans. How do you how do you rank? wildflowers among petty's albums so if you were going to do kind of a top five personal favorite petty albums or, or what you think are his best kind of where would you put wildflowers in that list or would, would it be among the the top five in that list? yeah 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 um it prompts a question for me for you guys but you don't have to answer but i'm just curious about what ultimately you think you're coming down on as what classifies something as great for your purposes right so is it favorites or is it greatness is it ambition is it um rock and roll i don't know um how are you yeah well the tom petty is a great microcosm for that yeah um i mean the way we started with our methodology is that i made a list of 50 that i say i think these albums belong on a list of 100 greatest of all time and rob did the same and even though we did the same task we still had different ways of approaching it Mm -hmm. you know i did you know a mixture of like just you know, undeniable, these are hits with a few of like, I know no one else is going to say this, but I have to stand by this one. Uh, Some of those. And Wildflowers, I think, was one of those for me. And we said in our first episode, like, you know, I don't think that this is going to appear in a lot of people's top 100 all times, but as someone, you know, being from Florida, you know, there there is that kind of regional uh, allegiance, I guess, to to Tom Petty. You know, you, you... Uh-oh. Special Finney form, especially since his passing. I moved to Kentucky uh, a few months after I moved to Kentucky. He died, and I felt guilty, um, even though he lived in California for m- most of his life at that point. Uh, still, you know, it still it hurt a little extra. Yeah, it, it's really hard to distinguish between what's you know a best album of an artist, your favorite album from an artist, or what's the most pivotal or most important from yeah. an artist. And then uh, which of those are you going to say is the quintessential album from that person and, you know, which belongs on that list. And, you know, cause for Tom, Petty, I mean, I think there's a case for at least three Tom Petty albums. Right. But I would say that my top five, maybe if I could, maybe if I go one to five, maybe then I'll get there. I mean, wildflowers is my number one. Obviously, that's how we got here because Rob put it on his and I put it on mine. So that's one of our first you know, uh, albums that we're going to look at. Number two for me is Damn the Torpedoes. The thing plays like a greatest hits album. And, Sounds <laughs> sublime. Oh, yeah. It's probably the best um, Ivine album, mm-hmm. too. Like better than what he got out of Patti Smith and Bruce Springsteen. Um, I think that was probably the, the best record he put out. Um, and then number three for me will be Full Moon Fever. And then from four, 
as problematic as it is, as we've talked about, there is a special place in my heart for Southern accents. Mm-hmm. Uh, Don't Come Around Here Anymore is probably the first Tom Petty song I remember hearing. And not only that, it's the first, it's probably the first time I saw him was in the music video, the Alice in Wonderland video. You know, so, you know, I, it's personal. I can't defend it too well. Um, and then I guess Hard Promises would be the fifth one. I think that's, especially those like last two tracks, uh, Insider and mm-hmm. uh, You Can Change Your Mind. Like, I think those are great sides of Tom Petty that we don't see too often until about Wildflowers. Yeah, yeah. I should say, come back to one of the very fixed, uh, the very first things I said is I didn't know Tom Petty until uh, Full Moon Fever. I, of course, saw the videos for You Got Lucky, for Don't Come Around Here No More, but in my mind, that was not the same person, right? Which goes oh, to the point, right? Yeah, I just yeah. didn't connect. Um, yeah. That's a good list. I, can I go next? Please. I mean, I think... So this is probably unfair. So I'll probably give you six. Because I think if I was going to give one Tom Petty record to someone, it would be the live anthology. Because I think oh, it's really- wow. And um, I think that there are some performances on there that are even on tracks from Wildflowers, like uh, Crawling Back to You. Like the Crawling Back nice. to You performance mm-hmm. on the live anthology is incredible. The mm-hmm. Wildflowers performance is incredible. Wake Up Time is, is incredible. Um, so I think if I was going to push like a maniac, one Tom Petty object on people, it would be that. But that's a compilation record, so probably not good for your purposes. And a live I, album. That's I mean, that's a double double. Yeah, I mean, it's it's four CDs, man. It's incredible. Um, so I think if I was going to do my five, I would do Wildflowers would be first. Damn the Torpedoes would be second, with the caveat that that might actually be the greatest, like in in rock critic ways. This is weird. I've listened to this more than any other record, other than Southern Accents, and Southern Accents was for a specific reason. I think that Long After Dark is a great record. And I think that that's not one that people love a lot, but I think that it is better than they thought it was at the time. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's a really good set of songs. Um, and I think that a lot of their albums have great songs and then some low points. I don't think there's anything truly, truly great except for straight into darkness. And maybe you got lucky on long after dark. But I don't think there's also any valleys either. I think it's a really solid record. I think that the final track Online After Dark is, is a great finish. What is it? To the album. Well, when you're trying to talk about all of them at once, it really... A Wasted <laughs> Life. A Wasted, wasted life. life. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that, that, that's a yeah. great uh, recording. I mean, it's an album closer. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a good... And he's great at that. He's... Whenever you... you if a Tom Petty album, they, they always start great, right? Mm-hmm. And then even if they dip, you're like, I don't know about this one. They, they finish strong. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that's a great way... To finish that record, I like the first record a lot. Really? Me too. Yeah. It, that that might be my number six. Yeah, and then I really, really love Hard Promises. Yeah, and like I drop off like the Jeff Lynne records. I love the songs. I just don't like the production. They don't feel live to me, right? I mean, I think there's some incredible songs. There's some songs that were recorded for Southern Accents that didn't get that got dropped off, and that like Trailers, one of them that shows up later. Mark Crutch. Yeah, on Mud Crutch Stuff or on Long or on uh, Full Moon Fever. Is it Trailer or is it Apartment Song? No, Trailer. Oh, well, you might be talking about Apartment Song. It's Apartment Song. Trailer is a great Mud Crutch song, though, and, uh, which we haven't really talked about Mud Crutch uh, as his, like, Southern rock band. Mm-hmm. But it, it's really, I, I, I think about this a lot, how Mud Crutch 2 was the last Tom Petty album. yeah. And and, yeah. and I really love it for that. Yeah. Um, that it, he, that his career really got to end like where it started. Yeah. <laughs> I, re- yeah. I really I really like that. With those guys being swampy. What a beautiful way to kind of come full circle. I mean, in in a lot of ways, that this idea of a Tom Petty who is always running away from Florida, and Tom mm-hmm. a Tom Petty who's always running away from the South. Like there is something. I mean, how how. In, in light of his death, how appropriate that mm-hmm. Mudcrutch becomes his last album mm-hmm. that you get to see almost this, this, uh, almost this kind of place son. of surrender. Yeah. This, mm-hmm. this kind you of know. coming, coming. How many religious now. metaphors can I fit into this discussion <laughs> on Tom? <laughs> I mean, for me, he, if I'm doing my top five Tom Petty's, it is Wildflowers, 
she's the one soundtrack just because I, I those I, I you can always put the two of those together. Yeah, yeah. But but that the style of music he's writing for this album and then ultimately what becomes she's the one soundtrack. I love all of it. Um Into the Great Wide Open, which is of course the the band album he does, the full band album he does before going to record Wildflowers. Full Moon Fever, of course, is his first solo album right, that comes out right before Into the Great Wide Open. And then Damn the Torpedoes for you would be five. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, I love this season of his songwriting. Mm-hmm. Again, comes out of all of this transition. There is there is an authenticity. There is a, um, I, I agree with you, Jeff Lynn's production, especially in comparison to Rick Rubin's production and Wildflowers leaves a ton to... <laughs> uh to desire um but still the songwriting mm-hmm. tom petty i think writes arguably some of his very best songs during this kind of six-year period of time and in and, and for me they they all they all just stand up kind of i over i, I think that's time. i totally agree and i think that's probably a large reason why i like anthology so much mm-hmm. because a lot of those songs are there and the band's just playing them yeah. Right. And they're just great songs like the learning to fly performance on, um, on the live anthology. Uh, there's the moment where like the band, the, uh, the, the crowd sings along, which is not something I usually go for on a recording, but it's just beautiful. It's beautiful because it's such an honest moment and a beautiful song. Uh, it's just, yeah, that, that song in particular is a great one. We want to take a quick break from today's episode to tell you a little bit about our independent record store of the week. This week, in honor of Tom Petty's Wildflowers, we are including St. Augustine, Florida's very own Tone Vendor Records with a new location opening up in Gainesville, Florida this spring. You can reach out to Tone Vendor at tonevendor.com where you can follow the link to browse their more than 10,000 album inventory on Discogs. You can also reach them by phone at area code 904-342-7981. Or you can find their location in downtown St. Augustine at 81D King Street in St. Augustine, Florida or their new location on University Boulevard in Gainesville. Is, yeah. is Jeff Lynn too British for Tom Petty? <laughs> is he too? Is, is he kind of like too much uh, the British? You know, the, maybe the classic British gets carried away in the studio, no, man, playing with pro- sound. Here's the provocation, right? Dave Stewart, another British guy, is the one who fucked up Southern accents, and now Jeff Lynn went and made a mess of those records. So yeah, I think just British people are too British for Tom Petty. You know, even as, as much as buddy buddy as he is with you know the half of the Beatles, they transcend the United Kingdom. There, yes. Okay, there citizens you go. of the world. I mean, they, I mean, they are American citizens at that point, right? To some extent, I'm sure they spent plenty of time there. But yeah, but um, but also, I mean, they always tap different producers anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. I think I think it maybe takes one to know. I think he he might need another American guy uh, to. To, to get the best out of him, someone who kind of understands the kind of swampy, bluesy, southern rock thing that he is. I don't, maybe maybe the, the Brits never saw that in Tom Petty well, you and, know, and, but, didn't, and didn't think to bring it out. So then here's the thing. Denny Cordell, who produced uh, Purple Harem, Lighter Shade of Pale, looks like that, legendary producer, produced the first two Petty records, is British. And yeah, he's the true. guy that sort of like got them to stop being mud crutch and come up with another name. Then there were some personnel changes, but Cordell produced American Girl. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Now, but it's he someone and someone who's British who's seeing the power pop potential of Tom Petty, who's kind of looking at the, you know, uh, Elvis Costello potentially, or looking at the punk rock kind of scene happening in Britain. Is he seeing the power pop potential in Tom Petty? instead of just like the overly produced British pop music. Oh, yeah, I mean, I think that's true. But I also think that he just throws a wrench in our kind of 
I, don't know, I, I was thinking of this as a way just to, to slam the Brits <laughs> by, by, by talking down Jeff Lynn and David Stewart. But I think you're entirely right. that um, Full disclosure, dad side Southern, mom side British. Oh, man, I didn't know what to talk to. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, man, it's totally fine. I had a Cockney grandma. It's okay. But she, I mean, but the only time I ever spent with her was in the panhandle. So what are you going to do? That's incredible. It's incredible. There's, an, there's a great old Ben Folds 5 song called Army. And it has one of my all-time favorite lyrics for anyone who's ever been in a band. And so the, the lyric is, the, the band broke up in May and in June reformed without me, though they yeah. got a different name. Yeah. And, and I wonder, you know, here is all of these years of this band playing together. Of, of, for, for the most, I mean, for most of the personnel, these guys have been playing together 20 years by the time we get to full moon fever and Stan Lynch is still the drummer with, with the heartbreakers for into the great wide open. And that will be the last Tom Petty album he'll ever play on. And I, I wonder to what extent a guy who's going through the kind of situation he's going through in his marriage can also not handle a, a high maintenance drummer being as part of it, part of his band at the same time. So that, that idea of kind of going away, I'm going to go record with Rick Rubin, you know, Ben Montention and Mike Campbell and all like and how the rest, the rest of the band is still coming with me. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to stay home. That's, you know, I, I wonder to what extent um, wildflowers really is the, the opportunity for the band to reform to to reform in June under a different name. Yeah. Yeah, I mean he was he was a toxic guy at least for for Tom Petty. You know, the 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 Peter Bogdanovich documentary definitely I think displays that. And I think he was pretty self-aware of that too hmm. uh, by that time. Yeah, he also like Lynch had, had in addition to being the drum harpers, he had a successful produce, producing career going on, right? Like he had side projects, right? Mm-hmm. And he, um, like the last thing he cut with film was for the greatest hits, right? It was Mary Jane's Last Dance. Mm-hmm. And he walked out of the session and that was it. But I think one of the things that's interesting, and I agree with everything you all just said, but just to like put maybe a, another point to it, is that if you compare Stan Lynch's drumming, say in the cover of, uh, you may, of Shout, Mm-hmm. on the back of the Plantation Live, which is just an exuberant cover, such a good cover band, such a great cover band. Mm-hmm. And Stan Lynch's drumming is just so joyous and frenetic, but in control. It's musical. It's melodic. He's an incredible drummer. Steve Ferroni is a good timekeeper, but I don't find anything about his drumming joyous, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that even the kind of deep acrimony that developed between these two men who had known each other for decades, right. And just had ego problems with each other. I think that Lynch was the guy who was going to be harder to bring to heel for the type of projects that Petty wanted to do, starting with full moon fever. Hmm. Right. Cause I mean, I can't imagine a Stan Lynch track on, um, into the great wide open. I can't imagine how you play drums to that. And like the Stan Lynch way that would then like, keep him in the band, right? Yeah. This is a problem with that, like the final moves of Stan Lynch with the band and the Steve Ferroni coming in. Yeah, well, I want to talk more about Tom Petty and drummers because not only does he have Stan Lynch and Ferroni, uh, but he's worked with Ringo, mm-hmm. which is very interesting, and George Harrison. But something happens on SNL by the time the album comes out. Um, probably my least favorite track on the album, Honey Bee, um, and he taps Dave Grohl. Mm-hmm. to play with him. And I think that gets back to the Rick Rubin, you know, the hipness. Mm-hmm. Tom Petty can appeal to the kids of the 90s in, in a kind of a way that, that Neil Young did. And so I think it was Dave Grohl's maybe, he says in the Bogdanovich documentary, it was the first time he was excited to play drums against since Nirvana. Yeah. Yeah, I think he does say that, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, Tom Petty, but Tom Petty's always been pretty good at that in Full Moon Fever around that era. He tapped the replacements to mm-hmm. open for him. No, so I think he, Axel Rose come out at the MTV Awards to sing some verses on uh, Free Falling. I didn't wow. even know that. That's interesting. Yeah. It's a pretty funny video because Axel comes out doing his like snaky dance. <laughs> of course. And uh, <laughs> you'd be upset if he didn't. 
Totally. <laughs> money back. And this is before he had kind of blown his vocal cords and he still sounds like young Axel. And uh, the it's appetite pretty, for destruction guy. Yeah. It's yeah. an interesting, it's an interesting performance. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, so he's, he, he always maintained that kind of hip kind of attitude about him and he's always got good drummers. But one thing we never, we never, I don't think we've ever gotten this specific on, on the podcast before, but one thing that sets wildflowers, the part the most sonically is that snare drum. Oh. That snare that snare sound is it is probably the thing that sets it apart from anything before or after. I think it's a really unique snare sound that they get on that record. That to, to me, that's what makes it sound like wildflowers. Yeah. Maybe it's because I'm a drummer. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about how it comes in on you wreck me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and and you don't know how it feels. Yeah, yeah. That's that yeah. really, yeah, really. Uh, I don't even know how to describe it. I was gonna say warm, but I, I know that's not right. That's just how it makes me feel inside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's so far from the drum machine, the program. Even that Jeff Lynne, the snare can sound a little programmed, yeah. maybe even. Yeah. But I mean, it is alive on well, wildflowers. I mean, and well, don't come around here no more as a drum machine. Right. Dan Lynch only comes in for the last 45 seconds. Um, yeah, I think that's a good point. That's, I can't, you're the drummer, so you need to speak more about this. But I think you're definitely right. That is a stonic thumbprint for that record that is not there on other Petty albums. You know, but there's some, but when I listen to Wildflowers, like I get everything I want from Tom Petty. I think his mm-hmm. voice is the best. This, I think the, the music is the best that it could sound from, from him and those guys, since essentially is the Heartbreakers, you know, with the exception as we've been saying. So I, I that, and there's 15 tracks, and they're, for the most part, 15 good tracks. There are two I can live without. Which two? Um, Honeybee. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm glad Honey, we agree. I wasn't going to say that. I thought you would no, just cut me off. Yeah, no, Honey, Honeybee, I can, I can, I can do without. I can and do without I, too. I think, I think it doesn't age well. I think that that's him. I think definitely pandering to the grunge kids, mm-hmm. trying to bring them in, made evident by having Dave Grohl play drums in SNL. And um, similarly, um, Cabin Down Below. Yeah. Yeah, th- those are the two, you know, you can have any of the She's the One songs, you know, replace those, and I, I would be that much happier. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, th- those two don't, don't necessarily do it for me, but, you know, you hear it. They're, they're sequenced well enough on the album that they're, they're kind of in the middle there so that it, it wins me back pretty much right away. Mm-hmm. After after you know they they come and go, and we, and now that now that's back on, um, on vinyl, it's much easier to deal with those. We're not just streaming fifteen songs, you know, to to break it up like four songs at a time, or so. Um, that also helps get over those two kind of bumps for me. So, so that being said, Michael, so so our question for you, yes, damn the torpedoes may be greatest Tom Petty album for our listeners. And, and we'll kind of start, start wrapping it up here. Why is wildflowers your personal favorite? Um, I don't think I can really speak with authority about the stuff that came after because it just, and probably for what I'm going to say about why I think wildflowers is my favorite. It just feels like, um, Everyone, you know, people are always trying to evolve into something. And if you have any artistic impulse, you always want to get to a point where, like, the channels are just running clean, right? And there's no clip or no distortion. And um, that really feels like what that album did. Like, that sounds almost too theoretical, but it is an emotional response on my part. Because I feel like the rock stuff in the 70s was really good rock music. And then we hit the 80s, which was something and then we hit this early 90s stuff which was these songs trying to just tear out of cellophane in many ways and that's a production that's not a compositional problem that's a production problem again that's why i think the live anthology is incredible mm-hmm. um and then wildflowers just really seems to nail it i mean it seems like that's just like the single solitary brilliant flare where like if that was all tom petty ever did that would be all he'd ever needed to do mm-hmm. and i think that even if you just like if you start wildflowers from the first track and you go up to maybe Honeybee. What's the track listing off the top of my head? Um, 
Yeah, man. If you go up to the first five songs, like that's such an incredibly potent, incredible and profound, like sequencing. Mm-hmm. But that right there could be the entire record for me. Right. And that's then more it, than half of what would be Southern accents. Yeah. And then it just keeps going and um, ends ending how it does so powerfully with crawling back to you and wake up time. I just, I don't know, man, I'm not being very articulate. I just find it an incredibly generous articulation, right. Of his vision. And by generous, I mean like it's so understanding of what everyone else is going to bring to it. Right. It's, it's his best songwriting. Like everyone loves his stuff because they can see themselves in his music. Right. And that's because there's kind of a, there's not like a Springsteenian specificity to it. Yeah. Right. And I think that he manages to pull that trick with wildflowers while still being brutally honest. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing about the way it's delivered, which is saccharine or overproduced or muffled. And all these things together make it a really powerful document. Yeah. And he gets to do everything that he likes to do. You know, he has the soft acoustic kind of ballad that he opens up that way. The kind of hayseed, you know, let's just smoke a joint and chill mm-hmm. kind of ballad, you know, and but he gets his big rock and roll honeybee stuff out of his system. He taps Ringo for to find a friend. He does his kind of birds homage, birds pastiche with a higher place, that big 60s pop sound that he mm-hmm. likes to do. And then this kind of big operatic finish with Wake Up Time, mm-hmm. one of my favorite vocal performances also that is kind of akin to All Right For Now vocally mm-hmm. you know so he, he gets to do everything that he wants to do and he and it's the best version of that so like petty was supposed to meet with me to talk about my book and um oh damn he agreed i wrote to his office and um and this is actually in the book to some extent a version of it because i feel like i needed to explain why he wasn't in it when i because i met with ben mon and mike um in la but <laughs> i wrote to him i wrote to his people and uh a woman named Mary Clouser, right? There's a song on Southern Accents called Mary's Car. Yeah. Mary got a brand new car. So yeah. that was this Mary, right? She'd been with him forever working in front of house. And uh, she's like, all right, what record do you want to talk about? And I said Southern Accents. And you could just hear her voice change. Like, oh, because she expected me to talk about torpedoes or wildflowers, right? Yeah. And uh, so she'll give me some time. And like two days later, she writes back. She goes, Tom's eager to talk, but um, he's rehearsing for the Music Cares Person of the Year Award. And then he's going on tour. So it'll need to be after the tour. And I said, well, I've got tickets for a few spots on the tour. If there's time in Nashville or Cincinnati, you know, just 30 minutes of his time, just for initial conversation. She's like, that won't be possible. Fair enough. Right. Yeah. And uh, she said, just write to me in, um, you know, September, late September. So I wrote at, and this actually, I know is in the book at like nine 30 um, or no, it was later than that. Cause I wrote at a decent time on the West coast. So say I wrote at 1130 or 1230 PM Eastern time. And then within the next hour, like news of the cardiac arrest broke. Right. And, uh, I wrote another note saying, forget it. And I just thought, well, we'll just go ahead with the book. I don't need it. It's not the kind of book where I need to talk to him. Right. Yeah. And, uh, although I would have liked to have talked to him because there's no, he's not a dumbass. Obviously. And there's no reason anyone would want to talk to him about Southern accidents in 2018 or whenever it was, if they didn't want to talk about the Confederate stuff. Right. So I was eager to talk to him, but then she wrote back to me a few months later and said, Hey, I feel so bad. Um, I've asked Ben Mike, if they'll meet with you. So they're waiting for your call. And so Mm -hmm. I went out and, um, spent a lot of time with those guys and they're incredible. But, um, speaking of Mike Campbell, the reason I'm even bringing this up, other than like tell stories about famous people I've met is that, I met him at his house, like his big rock star house and in his home studio. And the entire time we're sitting there, he's like, got this Les Paul, like he'll play songs to jog his memory of what song it is. It's like, he'll forget the name of the waiting until he plays the waiting. (laughs) And then, and as I'm sitting there the entire time, you know, his, his, uh, his broadcaster, telecaster is like 52 broadcaster, the yellow and and black guitar that's everywhere is like on a pile of cables next to us. Right, closer to me than that 335 is to me now. And like it's just there. Like it's a very famous guitar. He's like, so we get done talking. He's like, hey, you want to see my guitar? Like hallway. <laughs> and so we go to this hallway and he's like showing me. He picks up the Rickenbacker that's on the cover of Dan the Torpedoes. He's like, here's this. And then he pulls down this Les Paul Gold Top they've recorded Stranger to the Night with. He's like, this is Stranger to the Night. And we're talking about these guitars. And I look over at the broadcaster. He's like, yeah, that's it. And he walks over and he picks it up. And he didn't hand it to me because I don't even know if I'd said I play or anything. Probably not. I hope I didn't. And um, <laughs> like, yeah, this is the song that I recorded, you know, 
first off, he said, you know, you know the song Night Watchman? I was like, yeah. He's like, well, that was me trying to play backwards paperback writer. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, oh, I was just trying to play, I was trying to write something. So I thought I would just play a Beatles riff backwards, just caught my own, <laughs> which is an awesome thing to say. And so he plays it and then he plays huh. the, the melody for Breakdown and then he plays um, The Waiting. He just plays all these songs. And the thing, and this is just him holding on a guitar, right? It's not amplified, it's just the acoustic properties of the instrument. And what was crazy about it is I had never been, and I never will be again, around a famous guitar, like a guitar that I had heard, right? On so many songs. And it was immediately apparent. Like I now know every song that guitar is on when I hear it because it is such, its voice is so distinct. Wow. And uh, that was like my favorite point of meeting with those guys. Ben Mott was great. Mike was great. Ben Mott was incredible. But like to have that little guitar experience was nearly religious for, for a guitar player. Yeah, it was awesome. That, that Rickenbacker, those sound great without being plugged in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, that, that broadcaster of his was just something. He's like, yeah, I always play this. And whenever I plug it in, the sound guys are like, play that more. Play that more. It sounds good. <laughs> so, 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 Michael, for, for our listeners, as, as we're getting ready to let you go, tell us a little bit about what, what you're doing these days. What, I know you're, you're, you're living in, in Louisville, but you're, you're still essentially working in, in New York. Um, tell, tell the listeners a little bit about what you're doing and uh, how they can – uh, get a hold of stuff that you've written or what, what project you have coming up that you're excited about? Uh, so, yeah, I split my time between, well, in the olden days, I split my time between Louisville, Kentucky, and New York, uh, where I'm director of programs for an organization called Humanities New York, which is the New York State affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Uh, we are in the business of getting people in rooms together who are not normally in rooms together, talking about things they don't normally talk about. We also provide tools, training materials for organizations around the state to like run their own discussion programs for their citizens, for, their, for the members of their community, citizens of Fraught Ward. Um, and we also are a grant maker. We're a small foundation. And then we also run some fellowship programs for academics who want to do public-facing work. Uh, where, where can uh, everyone get the Southern Accents book? Uh, you know, you can get it at... So it's on Amazon. Um, if you would prefer to support your local independent bookseller, which I strongly suggest, you can get it on IndieBound, order it through IndieBound to your local indie, or just call your local bookstore and ask them to order it. Um, Bloomsbury is the imprint that publishes Harry Potter, so they have a lot of distribution. Um, most bookstores will have copies, and I strongly suggest that if you think that the series is interesting to check out some of the other books. I mean, they vary wildly, like... Um, yeah, most the, the, guy... the big pink book is a novella. Because I was looking into the because we did a it is? band recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the music from Big Pink is actually a novella instead of like a rock criticism. I, yeah, I don't. Well, uh, what's the guy John Darnell from who is Mountain Goats? He wrote one on Sabbath's Master of Reality, and that's a novella too. Um, Interesting. The most famous or most yeah famous that's relative. The best selling book is by a guy named Carl Wilson who wrote a book on uh, Celine Dion. And like the first sentence is, let's talk about hate. And it ends up being oh. kind of like, it's, this is so pretentious. It's like a <laughs> Bordeauxian critique of culture, like a, like a critique of taste. Okay. Right? Um, and it's really kind of mean-spirited. My favorite, it's great, but mean-spirited. My favorite and the most fun, as far as I'm concerned, is a guy at University of Alabama named Eric Weisberg, who wrote a book about the Guns N' Roses Use Your Illusion albums. And I think it's just so much fun and so smart. And then speaking of Petty and the South... Um, and British people, actually. The very first book in the series was written by Petty's biographer, Warren Zanes, about Dusty in Memphis, Dusty Springfield's incredible record that was recorded in Muscle Shoals. And it is a really, really deft exploration of both uh, Springfield and some stuff about the South. But, you know, there's 150 of them. A lot of them are really good. I would like to read that one and also the new from Elvis in Memphis. Hmm. Uh, I love that record. Then they both came out the same year. Both came out in 1969. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Michael, we want to thank you so much uh, for your generosity of your time and, uh, and just kind of nerding out with us about an artist that we all clearly love so much. And uh, great to talk to a, a fellow Southerner about this artist that in many ways spends this entire season of his life wrestling in new ways with his southernness in in ways that brings out some of his very best art of his career so excited for fellow southerners who are also wrestling with what it means in the 21st century to be southern and what the good the bad and the ugly of that is
But Michael, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Wow, Micaiah, uh, what an incredible conversation with Michael Washburn. What is your takeaway? As, as we have just had that conversation, what's your takeaway? Right. Uh, I mean, I, I like that we, I think all three of us maybe have that, that same kind of tension between what's the best, what's the greatest, what's the most popular, who gets to decide that, and how is that decided? But I like that we all kind of landed on on wildflowers, even with the recognition of like, okay, damn torpedoes, plays like a greatest hits. But man, if Tom Petty is not at his best on wildflowers, then, you know, then where else is in that discography? You know, and it's so impressive that with 15 tracks, his his biggest at that point, in his career, his most ambitious to 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 be that successful at creating just like a great masterwork is is pretty exceptional uh, in, in in rock music. So uh, yeah, I think it's. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's a question. You know, it's. I think for a lot of people, they're gonna be wondering, does Tom Petty? You 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 have essentially a hundred people to choose from. Right. And Tom Petty's gonna be one of them. Are you sure? And you know, not not just this album, but him as an artist. If you only get to choose a hundred people, right? And yeah, I mean, I think he's one of our great songwriters. We not not just you and I being Floridians, but rock music's great writers. And uh it'd be a shame not to have his best work represented on this list. So what what what's your take? Yeah, I I was really I enjoy speaking to a non-Floridian who is a fellow Southerner about how they understand and interpret Tom Petty. And that even with all of um what can sometimes be problematic in Tom Petty's history and uh some of the thematic choices that were made, especially during that Southern accents period. I, I, I couldn't agree more um, with Michael that that was a pivotal time for him. And, and the, the outcome in many ways of that season of failure was a season of songwriting that led to wildflowers. And I just think this is Tom Petty at his very best. Now, Again, I can understand someone saying, I don't know if Tom Petty is a all-time 50 greatest artist, but I think there is very little doubt that this is the best Tom Petty album. And, yeah. and as a Floridian, maybe that's a, a homer pick to say, yes, this is an all-time top 50 great album. But for me, it is. Micaiah, close it out for us. Is Wildflowers worthy of inclusion in our first 25 you're not gonna get a no from me i mean especially since not only have i been listening to to wildflowers i've been listening to wildflowers and all the rest right which is what he intended to release the extra 10 songs um many of which appear on the she's the one soundtrack um but listening to that all together you're like I mean, th- this is it, man. I mean, this is, you, you don't get much better like songwriting out of somebody than this. And then also in that deluxe edition, you get the home recordings of those songs. They're way more intimate. And especially since it's passing, you know, it, it's such a gift to have that. And then like what Michael was saying, uh, the other part of the deluxe edition is all live versions of, of those songs with some other added kind of deep uh, deep cuts um and and the band really comes alive and the, it spans from the 90s 2000s and even i think there's even one from 2017 so it's probably one of his last performances and it's just amazing man i mean that that band is just incredible i mean truly one of the great great acts of american music i i i I, I went into this think, thinking, you know, what would offend me if I didn't see it in a top 100 list? And it would certainly be offensive to me if it's something this good, you know, from someone this great uh, weren't on this list. I think, I think it's a fair argument to be made 
that Tom Petty is not a top 25 all-time great artist. I, I think that's a fair argument to be made. And in both of us, because of where we're from, we're in, and because we are living in the aftermath of his recent death, we're probably too close to it on a lot of levels to be unbiased. Um, yeah. But it, within my biased opinion, Wildflowers is a top 25 yeah. album worthy, worthy of inclusion in our first season list. So listener, yeah. what do you think? Are, 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 you, are you with us? that this is worthy of inclusion do you think we're crazy for having a tom petty album in our first season 25 uh let's hear from you of course you can reach out to us on instagram at you forgot one you can reach out to us on our website you forgot one.com you can reach out to us on twitter at you forgot one pod and then of course if you are listening on the anchor app we are anchor.fm slash you forgot one and you can leave us a voicemail and let us know what you think and be included on a future episode. So we're so glad that you stayed with us for this episode and we are hoping that you're going to thoroughly enjoy next week's episode as we dive in to Tribe Called Quests Low End Theory. So here we go, yo. Here we go, yo. <laughs> so what's the what's the scenario? We'll see you next week. Some days are diamonds. Some days are rocks. Some doors are open. Some roads are blind. And sundowns are golden. Then fade away And if I never do nothing I'm coming back someday Cause you got a heart and soul